I invite you to grab your Bible now and turn to uh, the book of Job as we continue in our series. And we'll be looking at chapter 3, Job chapter 3. Uh, you'll Maybe we'll note that we, we're skipping over Job 2, verses 11 through the end of that chapter, but I'll pick that up, Lord willing, uh, next week as we continue on and look at Job's friends. just want to remind you, too, as you're opening your Bibles, that we will be having service uh, this evening as well. Reverend Mike Scout will be uh, coming and uh, preaching the Word here at Harvest, but live-streamed again to both Harvest and Grace Fellowship families and to all those who are joining us online, and so looking forward to that as well. Job chapter 3. This, of course, is immediately after Job has been devastated by the, um, the permission of God as the devil has been allowed to take away everything that Job has, including his health. And his friends have come and they've uh, sat with him for seven days without saying anything. And now Job finally speaks. And this is what he says, Job chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because they did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So far the reading in God's word this morning. 
Well, back when I decided to preach a sermon series on the book of Job, I, I knew that it would be relevant because God's Word is always relevant. It's always useful. I did not know it would be this uh, relevant. It seems particularly um, meaningful in, uh, in these days as we sense there is really and truly a pandemic and people are, are getting sick and people are dying and it's, it's coming more and more uh, as, to be a reality for us. Uh, we uh, might well be facing difficult and dark days ahead. We might experience real loss, a loss of our health, loss of employment, loss of our privileges, uh, maybe loss of our uh, financial well-being, maybe loss of, our, of loved ones, and maybe even our own life. That's the reality. These are the realities that are uh, being pressed on us uh, in this pandemic. Well, two weeks ago when we studied Job chapter 2, I said then that Job 2 was maybe the most frightening chapter in the Bible because uh, Job, as you know, suffered tremendously already in chapter 1 and um, the, the Satan had come and God had, God had raised up Job and said, have you considered my servant Job, a righteous man, none like him in all the earth? And and uh, Satan had issued the challenge. Well, of course, Job fears you. Um, you bless him. Take away what he has and he'll curse you to your face. And so God gave permission and Satan did take away everything that Job had. But Job did not curse God to his face. And in fact, what Job did was worship. He bowed down. And Job said, um, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it was shown that God is worshipped on earth because of his glory, his being, not because of his gifts. And that's where we would like to just say, amen, end of story. Job wins. God has proven right. That was a great story. But then we get to Job chapter 2 and we find it's not the end of the story. That Satan comes back and challenges a God again. Take away Job's health and he'll curse you to your face. Skin for skin. And put him under real personal misery. Uh, and so God gives allowance, and Job then, in chapter 2, um, finds uh, his health is, is uh, destroyed utterly. He's decimated, and uh, he's left sitting on an ash heap, uh, scrubbing, uh, scraping the rotting skin from his body with broken pieces of pottery. Well, that's chapter 1 and 2, and chapter 3 doesn't get any better. Uh, it's maybe, it's one of the very darkest chapters in all of Scripture. There's, there's no light in Job 3, just darkness, just heartbreak, weeping and wailing, uh, a, a man, a godly man, who is pouring out the deep bitterness of his soul caused by the unimaginable loss that God has brought his way. Uh, Christopher Ashe, in his commentary, uh, points out that Job 3 is a very important chapter for contemporary Christianity. That's an interesting thing to say. This dark chapter, Ash suggests, is a very important chapter for contemporary Christianity. And, and Ash backs that up by just pointing out that one of the fastest growing movements in the Christian church around the world in the last 10 to 20 years particularly is the health-wealth movement, uh, the prosperity gospel. And that can be uh, either the prosperity gospel that preaches um, 
you know, if you believe in God and, and, and uh, sow the seed of your money, God will bless you with material riches. Or it can be the prosperity gospel of someone like um, a Rachel Hollis, who just if you believe in God and, and exercise that faith, you're going to thrive um, in, in, uh, in your abilities, in your relationships. Um, the, the gist of the prosperity gospel simply is that God wants you to be blessed. Jesus came to open up the treasures of heaven so that you can experience blessings here and now, whether they be physical, uh, physical blessings, material blessings, relational blessings, blessings in your job, where you, uh, God wants you to thrive, however you might define thriving. Well, it's very popular because it's exactly what we hope to hear right in ourselves and in our flesh. But the nasty backside of that teaching is that if you're not thriving, if you're actually suffering, if you're struggling, if your relationships are, are painful and hard, if you've lost your health, if, uh, if financially you're in great distress, you see, the, 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 the backside of the doctrine is, if that's your reality, you're not doing it right, right? You're not doing Christianity right. You must be doing something wrong. Well, Job chapter 3 just explodes that theology. It completely destroys it. You see, Job wasn't doing anything wrong. Job was doing everything right by God's own uh, profession. Have you considered my servant Job? He's a blameless and upright man. He fears the Lord. He shuns evil. There's none like him in all the earth. That's God's statement about Job. He's doing everything right. And yet Job ends up on the ash heap, scraping the dead, rotting skin from his body because God has decimated him. And so God has given us this chapter because it's important for us to learn the lessons of despair. What does faith look like on the ash heap? The chapter uh, divides neatly into two parts. In verses 1 through 10, we have Job's curse. And then in the rest of the chapter, 11 through 26, we have Job's lament. Let's give our attention to it. First, the curse. We need to understand what, um, what a curse is biblically. Uh, we might think of um, people who cast witches and things like that. They cast spells and curses. Uh, that's actually not far from the truth. Uh, though uh, in, in, the, in Scripture, um, curses are, are uh, a prayer or a wish or a proclamation that's intending to bring, a, a, it's a malediction or a blight against someone or something. So the, the best example, of course, is Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. God does something to the earth. And so, um, so now things happen, primarily death. But there are thorns and thistles. There's, there's obstruction. There's decay. There's, things are broken. They're not as they ought to be. That's because of the curse God placed on the earth. COVID-19 is a direct result of the curse that you have in Genesis chapter 3. Well, Job is pronouncing, wishing a curse on the day of his birth. 
He wants that day to receive all the blight and malediction of, uh, of God's judgment. Let that day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. And there's, there's darkness throughout the chapter, right? Let not light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Clouds dwell on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Now, darkness here is not just uh, the inability to see. Darkness is God is not there. There's nothing good. There, there's, there's, there's judgment here, or there's at least the absence of God. We're told in Genesis chapter 1, um, boys and girls, if you remember the story, when God created the heavens and the earth, what's the first thing he created? He created light, didn't he? Let there be light because the world was just formless and void and there was a deep darkness. And God speaks light into the darkness. He turns the lights on. Job says here, turn the lights off. Let the day I was born be uncreated. Back into the, the void, the godless abyss. He's cursing the day of his birth. He's cursing the night he was conceived. Verse 7, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Listen to what he says here. Let it hope for light, but have none. That's really dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Why would this man wish these things? We're told in verse 10. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. It did not shut the doors of my womb, of my mother's womb, or hide trouble from my eyes. He wants the day and the night of his conception and birth um, to be unwound, uncreated, unformed, and darkness to be on it. Because it failed. The thing that Job wishes it had done, it failed to close the doors of his mother's womb. Now, we might struggle with words uh, like this. Uh, Job doesn't sound very uh, spiritual here, does he? Oh, what about uh, give thanks in everything? What about count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds? Well, that's not a bad question. Uh, but we need to be careful. Uh, I've listened to several sermons on this text trying to figure out um, just to get my hands around it, how to preach this. It's not a common text. I've listened to uh, several men quickly move to condemn Job um, for his words here. Uh, men who will confidently say, Job is sinning. It's obvious he's sinning. Uh, he shouldn't say things like this. He shouldn't think that he's wiser than God. He should submit to uh, God's will. God clearly intended Job to be born. Uh, who is Job to say that God made a mistake? And that the moral of the story of Job chapter 3 is we need to be careful uh, when we're in pain because we're tempted then to say things that we shouldn't say. And that's what's happening here. Job is saying things he should not say. Well, i just like to point out uh, if you're maybe thinking those things, uh, there's nothing in the text that rebukes Job for sinning here. 
God does not say Job has sinned. In fact, um, at the end of the book, God will rebuke his friends for their words. doesn't rebuke in the sense of calling Job to, to uh, confess sin. Uh, Job is, is a priest who atones by offering a sacrifice for the sins of his friends. So let's just at least acknowledge that God isn't jumping forward here in chapter 3 to rebuke Job. But second then, to make Job 3 a moral lesson of what we should or should not do is to disastrously miss the point. And in fact, and in, uh, in, in effect, you align yourself with Job's friends because we're going to find that immediately after Job's speech, his friends suddenly have a lot to say. And they are going to rebuke Job precisely for a speech like this. Who are you to talk to God this way? And so before we try to fit Job's words into our understanding of what Christians should or shouldn't say, let's, let's just pause to hear them. These are words ripped from the anguish of his soul. This is a godly man wailing in grief, pouring out the bitterness of his sorrow. He's been released into the howling wilderness of unspeakable anguish and loss. And before we judge him, let's just listen to him. Just listen. Let the pain of this man on the ash heap let it, be, let it be heard. Sense it. You see, brothers, friends, we have brothers and sisters around us who find that these words express their thoughts and their experiences. And maybe in the context of church, they've not felt free to share what they feel. Because someone would say, well, you're a Christian, you shouldn't feel that way. Some of you this morning know these dark nights of the soul. You know the grief and the bitterness of the ash heap. Uh, maybe you've wished that you'd never been born. Maybe you loathe your existence. And death has seemed preferable. I did to Job. We see that clearly in his lament as we look at the second portion of the chapter. Uh, we are, as uh, 21st century American Christians, not well versed in the genre of lament. Some of you have been reading uh, the uh, book by Mark Rogop, uh, The Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Great little book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And he defines lament this way. He says, a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Well, that's what we have here. We have, at least we have a prayer in pain. A Job isn't just speaking into the, um, the nameless void as he, as he speaks these words. He knows there's a God. He believes in that God. And he's pouring out his soul and his anguish before God. Notice he's not cursing God as he pronounces his curse. He's cursing the day of his birth, 
the night of his conception. He's not cursing God. He's not abandoned his faith. Job just doesn't have any idea how to reconcile what he is experiencing at, from the hand of God with what he had believed to be true about God. And you're gonna, we'll find that as we go through the book. Job doesn't know how to put these things together. What he had assumed to be true about God and, and, and the things that would happen to a person who believed in God and what he's actually experiencing. And so there's questions. Well, laments are full of questions. And often the question, why? Psalm 42, verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? We saw it in, in Psalm 13. How long will you forget me forever? Why do you hide your face from me? Job's lament is filled with why questions. Why didn't I die at birth? Why didn't I come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? You see, to, to Job, what, what was the point? Why bring me into the world, God, and bless me with all these things only to rip them away and utterly destroy me? You see, why not just let me die? If you're going to kill me, just why not do it right off the bat? Because then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. I would have been at rest. Again, some of you know what this despair is like. Some of you know what it feels like to think that death would be preferable. Death would make the pain go away. Death would be a, a, a time to rest. And, and Job is just, it's just pouring out from him. Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Because there the wicked cease from troubling. They can't bother you anymore. And there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They don't hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Job is preferring death. Now we need to be clear that Scripture is not condoning suicide nor is Job considering suicide. He's not considering suicide. You see, there's, there's, there's nothing in the text to suggest that Job ever considered taking his own life. That would be, in its own way, Job cursing God. That would be Job taking matters into his hand and saying, I refuse to live in, in, in the world that God has ordained. I refuse to submit to God's law. Um, that's what his wife told him to do. Curse God and die. Well, that's the devil's talk. That's the devil's talk. Murdering yourself is still murder. It's still a violation of God's holy command. It is, in, in its own way, uh, cursing God, a direct offense against God. It is no way to meet Him. And yet, we need to recognize that there will be times, and there can be times, in the believer's life where suffering seems to mock you and God doesn't seem to make any sense. You see, Job in his grief is utterly bewildered. Why? Why would God do this? Why would God rip everything away from him and then leave him alive? Why not just, why not just be done with it, you see? What is the one thing that Job wants? At that moment, if you say, Job, what do you want? Job would say, I want to die. But God won't give me that. He takes everything away, but he, but, he, but he makes me endure this misery. 
Why is light, verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is God doing this? It doesn't make sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. Why does God give light to mock my misery? Why must I go on? What's the point? It's not an unchristian question. Jeremiah the prophet, a godly man who suffered greatly for the cause of God in his day. Jeremiah the prophet takes these words verbatim. Job 3, for his own prayer in Jeremiah chapter 20. He asks the same questions. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, written as he is going through the process of just grieving the loss of his dear wife, Joy, he says this, The most precious gift that marriage gave me was this constant impact of something very close and intimate, yet all the time unmistakably other, resistant, in a word, real. Is all that work to be undone? Oh God, God, why did you take such trouble to force this creature out of its shell, bachelorhood, where he's just sort of happy living for himself. Why did you take such trouble to force this creature out of its shell if it is now deemed to crawl back in, to be sucked back into it? It just doesn't make sense to see us this. Why give this precious gift of marriage and then just rip it away? It doesn't make sense. Does God torture his children? Does he take pleasure in crushing those who believe in him? That, and that's what he writes. Lewis says, it, it's not that I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourselves no longer. What is God like? Those are the questions that we ask in great suffering. And if the ways of God have never confounded you, brother and sister, let me just suggest it may be because you simply have not been paying attention. If you've never wrestled with the ways of God. It must, I just can't imagine that you've been paying attention to the heartbreak of this world. There is profound vanity in this life. There really is. In this broken, sinful world, things are not the way they are supposed to be. And we should, we should be willing to experience that, to feel that. Ash, in his commentary, just has this little, he says, in, in St. Nicholas's church in the village of Morton in Dorset, England, there is a beautiful window engraved by Lawrence Whistler. It is a memorial to a local fighter pilot shot down and killed in the Battle of Britain. It shows the broken propeller of his plane, and on it are two pairs of initials, his and his young wife's. And then there are the years of their marriage, 1939-1940. One year. What did that premature death do to that young widow? 
What happened to all the potential and hope with which their marriage began? The children they might have had, their future together. In those initials, and in those dates, is such a compression of grief. Friends, that's the world we actually live in. That's the world we're experiencing right now, where heartbreaking, impenetrable tragedies actually do happen every day, and not just to other people. Job 3 is here to teach us the prayers of lament. Mark Rugop points out that the Bible's full of laments. It points out that a third, think of this, one-third of the Psalter, of the Psalms, are Psalms of laments. And he asks this revealing question. He says, if a third of the songs of Israel are about pain, why are songs of, of lament so infrequent in the contemporary church? Could it be that our prosperity and our comfort and love of triumphalism are reflected in what we sing? One of the best arguments for singing the Psalms is that they give us words to sing when we're in pain. The church loses something when we push the psalms aside or when we just take the happy, triumphant psalms. Psalm 100, Psalm 150. But if we don't know Psalm 13 or Psalm 77 or Psalm 88, well, then we don't have words. And these are God-given, Holy Spirit-inspired words. I remember... Um, my, I, I believe it, my grandma Van Dyke, I, I, I believe someone said that her favorite uh, psalm, psalm in, the, in the, the Psalter was uh, Psalm 77. To God will I direct my prayer and he will make my needs his care. It's a dark song. Uh, the thought of God gave me no peace, but rather made my fears increase. With sleepless eyes and speechless pain, my fainting spirit grieved in vain. The blessedness of long ago made deeper still my present woe. I asked in fear and bitterness, will God forsake me in distress? Shall I his promise faithless find? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hopelessly removed his love and grace from me? You see, when, when you are in a time of a great sorrow and God seems to have abandoned you, uh, it's a wonderful gift to have these words, to know that there was a saint a long time ago who penned those words, experiencing exactly what you're feeling, and that God's people throughout the ages have turned to Psalm 77 and found comfort there. These thoughts and fears that troubled me were born of my infirmity. Though I am weak, God is most high, and on his goodness I rely. Of all his wonders I will tell, and on his deeds my thoughts will dwell. That's Psalm 77. The church needs to know Psalm 77. But how do we sing Job 3? Rogop says that a, prayer, that a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. But there's no comforting conclusion to this lament. There's no new resolve of faith. There's no rediscovery of hope. It ends as darkly as it began. The thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So how do you, how do you interpret that? How do, you, how do we sing this song? 
And again, I, we've said this before and we need to say it again. I think it's critically important that at this point we remember who this man is. Uh, Job is not just a suffering man. He's not just like us in that sense. Job is a unique man, a set-apart man, a, uh, a blameless and upright man. He's in, this is the suffering of an innocent man, a righteous man of God who has been utterly and completely, thoroughly devastated by his God. In, in every way except the most literal, Job has lost his life. It's been ripped away from him. And now he's afloat in a limitless ocean of despair. And he doesn't know where God is. And the why questions, you see, of the lament are not meant just to resolve a question, but they're, the, they're an expression of a felt deception. And we'll find as we, as we see Job's words through, throughout the psalm, I, I just want to meet with God. I want to ask Him why. It's because this, this isn't right. Job feels deceived. This isn't how it was supposed to work. He feels abandoned. And as we understand that to be true about this innocent man, this righteous man, I think then we realize that what we have in the dark despair of Job 3 is maybe the clearest insight in Scripture uh, to the grief of our Lord Jesus on the cross. For there was a man who was in every way innocent, in every way righteous, never once committed a sin. And yet the thing that he dreaded came upon him. As he faced the cross, his soul had no rest, but he, he was prostrate on the ground, gripping the ground, sweating drops of blood, and pleading, my, my Father, my God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But it didn't pass. It didn't pass. All the agonies of divine wrath were poured over his sinless body and sinless soul. And in the darkness of his sorrow, it seemed that his father had forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the lament of the cross. And Job chapter 3 is a wonderful insight into the depth of the, of, of the despair and grief of our Lord. And I believe that's the ultimate meaning of Job chapter 3. You see, it, it points us to a greater trial, a greater suffering of a greater man. It points us to the cross of Christ. And, and it is in the shadow of the cross, friends, that, that we find faith and, and hope in the midst of decimating grief and sorrow. Because the cross tells us that Jesus, the very Son of God, has entered into this world of suffering and into this, uh, this experience of sorrow and death. And He did so in order to suffer. Not just to empathize or sympathize, but, but to enter into the suffering in, in a way that no man ever has, not even Job. Jesus, in a sense, comes and, and joins Job on the ash heap of his decimation, and then Jesus keeps right on going. 
into the abyss of judgment and hell. You see, that makes all the difference. Because when you find yourself asking, why this? Or why me? Faith will point you to the cross to ask, why that? And why Him? Why that? Why Him? And the answer is, because He loved you. He loved you. And so no matter what we might think or feel in our suffering, no matter how real those experiences are, and they are real, the cross, you see, shines through the fog of the grief and speaks the truth. You have not been abandoned. God has not left you. He has joined you in Jesus Christ who took on flesh to enter in our suffering and to bear a suffering we will never know in order to reconcile us forever to God. The cross says you've not been abandoned. You have been loved. You are not alone. God is with you. Jesus is with you. I was reading a um, lecture speech given by Johnny Erickson Tata a few years back um, at John MacArthur's church. And she says, uh, this is after, of course, Johnny was um, rendered a quadriplegic at 16, 17 years old because of a diving accident. And, um, and then she had chronic uh, excruciating uh, back pain um, for years. Uh, then she had cancer. And uh, she says this, she says, I remember one day Ken driving me home, that's her husband, driving me home from chemotherapy. I was in the back of the van, tied down, and I could watch him in the rearview mirror as we were traveling down the 101 freeway. And we started talking about how suffering is like little splashovers of hell. When you suffer, it should be your cue to remember the hell from which you were ultimately rescued because of Christ. And so we're discussing this and, and how amazing it was that God allowed splashovers of hell into our lives to wake us up out of our spiritual slumber. And then when we pulled up in the driveway, he turned off the ignition and looked at me in the rearview mirror. Well then, he said, what do you think splashovers of heaven are? And I thought, well, are they the easy, breezy, bright days where everything is going well? And we discussed this. Is it times when all the bills are paid and there are no trials, no tests, no chronic pain? And in the silence, we said, no. No, those aren't the splashovers of heaven. Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. There's nothing more poignant, nothing sweeter. Heaven isn't Jesus or God just making life easy. Splashovers of heaven are God joining us in the trouble, in the heartache, and saying, I'm with you. 
Why was the Apostle Paul willing to suffer so much? You'd think after a few trips uh, into these cities, he would figure it out that if I go in there and I talk about Jesus, something bad's going to happen. And yet he did it over and over and over again. And he was beaten and he was stoned and he was thrown into prison. He was accused of vile things. The answer is because he experienced Jesus there. Remember his prayer? I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Paul experienced Jesus there. And so friends, whatever trials God brings our way, whatever trials, either in this pandemic or in the coming days and years of your life, God knows, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we will find Jesus there if we're looking for him if we're willing to let the cross speak to us, if we're willing to let God speak to us in the cross of his son, I will be there. And God being there will render that a sweet fellowship that one day will open up into eternal fellowship face to face with Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is a powerful, hard text. And yet because of Jesus Christ, it is saturated with glory. Father, your people do suffer. We have brothers and sisters in prison today because of the gospel. We have brothers and sisters in hospital beds in Italy and they are dying and no one can come visit them because of the quarantine. And yet, Lord, they are not alone. And Heavenly Father, you know whatever trials you have prepared for us in our country, in our time. But I thank you, Lord, that you give us a song to sing a song of lament, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And you place before us the cross of Jesus Christ to see that righteous, beautiful Son of God suffer in ways that we will never know because he loved us. And that every trial that then comes our way comes through the same hands, the heavenly, fatherly hands that gave us Jesus. And that Jesus promises to be with us right now, no matter how deep the grief, no matter how great the loss, that Jesus will be there and the fellowship will be sweet. So Lord, then I pray that you'd equip us in faith to live with hope and joy and peace. And that Lord God, as, we are, as our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ, we might then honor him in our praise, our thanksgiving, our obedience, our love, our sacrifice, our service, even our suffering and sorrow. That Jesus would be praised. For Lord, that is, that's the desire of our life. And thank you that one day soon, Jesus, you will make all things new. May it be soon in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service this morning singing the song of lament, Lord from sorrows.
deep I call. Let's, uh, let's sing together.